it's Stephen Henderson today on the podcast. We're going to talk with journalist and author Scott Shane, whose new book, Flee North, highlights the life of Thomas Smallwood, a black man who was born into slavery, bought his way out, and then spent years freeing other African-Americans through the Underground Railroad. We'll also talk about the critical role that Detroit and Windsor, just across the Detroit River, played in the Underground Railroad. I am really happy that we are joined by Scott Shane, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author of the new book, Flee North. Scott, welcome back to Detroit Today. Stephen, thanks so much for having me on. Yes, it's great to have you here. Uh, I should also note for our listeners that uh, a long time ago, in the late 90s, Scott and I sat next to each other in the newsroom of the Baltimore Sun. So uh, we have known each other for quite some time. Uh, Scott, let's start with this. Who was Thomas Smallwood and how did you come across this incredible story uh, of his life and his, his work? Well, you know, one, uh, one way to answer that question is to just describe who Smallwood was at the peak of his Underground Railroad operation in the early 1840s. He's uh, around 40 years old. He's living a short walk south of the United States Capitol in southeast Washington, D.C. He has four kids and a fifth one on the way and a wife. And uh, during the day, he's working as a shoemaker, running a small business, trying to support his family. Uh, for a lot of us, that would be enough. But in at night, he's organizing these escapes, sometimes uh, initially with the help of a young white man named Charles Torrey. And they've gotten together, they have the same ideas. And one of them is let's not do this by ones and twos, but let's do it whenever we can by the wagon load, 10, 15, even 20 people packed into a wagon, taking off in the middle of the night, heading for a safe house near Baltimore, then heading for the Susquehanna River and uh, crossing into Pennsylvania, usually on the third night. So he's doing all that. And on top of that, somehow in this uh, intense life that he's built for himself, he's finding time. This completely self-educated man who has never attended a day of school in his life is writing these incredible satirical dispatches every week or two and sh sending them off to an abolitionist paper in Albany, New York, in which he says something about the escapes. He mocks the enslavers. He celebrates the people escaping. He uses everybody's real names except for his own. He, he writes these under a pseudonym he takes from Charles Dickens, one of his favorite writers. Uh, and, and they are you know, kind of a unique, real-time account of escapes. And I think one of the remarkable things is he turns the social order upside down. Uh, the the slaveholders are accustomed to thinking or at least arguing that the people they enslave are incapable of caring for themselves. So it's actually sort of a, uh, a generous service that they provide. <laughs> and uh, he, he portrays the slaveholders as a sort of dim-witted, befuddled race 
of pampered fools who can't really take care of themselves <laughs> without uh, others, you know, feeding them and clothing them. And uh, he portrays the enslaved as uh, witty, clever, and able to basically outwit the entire slave power, as they called it, to get away to the north. Yeah. Yeah. And as I said in the open, when we talk about slavery, it's always a complicated subject. And there are many layers of story about what was happening and, and why. But, but talk just a little about the incredible risk Smallwood was taking, not just by fleeing his fellow African-Americans or freeing his fellow African-Americans, but by, by taunting in the way he did this idea of, of upsetting the social order beyond stealing uh, uh, from, from enslavers was, was an added risk that, that I think it's probably hard for most people to, to imagine today. Absolutely. I mean, this is a guy who is free uh, he has purchased his freedom. He's a free man, but he's uh, everything he's doing is highly illegal. He can go to prison, uh, and he could be shot down as he tries to get away with a wagon load of uh, the enslaved. And uh, in in those days, he could even be uh, put back into slavery and mm -hmm. sold south. Uh, as a punishment for what he was trying to do. And he's doing this, he's sort of lurking among his white neighbors in Washington and in Baltimore, where he was also very active. And he's, you know, organizing all this stuff. Uh, and he's essentially, you know, I came to, to realize that he was using his blackness uh, as almost a superpower, hmm. because uh, I think particularly as these letters got around, and he would he would insist that the editors of the paper in in Albany, New York, send a copy of the paper to any slaveholder who was named in it. So these guys <laughs> are sitting in Washington and Baltimore around Maryland, and they're getting this you know copies of this paper from Albany, and they're opening it up, and there they are. <laughs> Uh, here's the here's the story of how uh, their workers have suddenly disappeared overnight, and here's this guy mocking them. So he's really poking the bear in that sense, and uh, yet in some ways those letters are part of his disguise, because undoubtedly most of these white slaveholders do not imagine that this black shoemaker born into slavery, never uh, educated in any formal way, would be capable of writing these basically masterpieces of satire uh, that they are reading. So he's, uh, as, uh, as he describes at one point, he's lurking among them, mm. taking notes. And, uh, <laughs> and so it really is an extraordinary situation. Yeah, yeah. Um, Thomas Smallwood is in many ways forgotten here. And in fact, uh, the title of the book refers to him that way. Why isn't his story more, more well-known? Yeah, that's a great question because as I learned more about him and as I read these letters, I really thought, here is a guy we really need to know about, you know, whose name 
ought to be as familiar to Americans as, uh, you know, the name of Frederick Douglass or Harriet Tubman mm -hmm. or other heroes of that period. And, you know, I think part of it is, um, you know, spoiler alert, he gets away to Canada himself. He always urged the people he was helping to escape to keep going until they left uh, American soil and entered Canada, part of the British Empire at the time, because he believed with good reason that even in upstate New York, uh, they would not be safe from the slave catchers and the slave catching police who left uh, cities like Washington and Baltimore and traveled hundreds of miles trying to recapture people who'd escaped slavery and collect the reward money slaveholders were offering. But he himself ends up in Canada. So he's a little bit um, off the radar. He has to earn a living. He's no longer able to write. Uh, and also his white partner, Charles Tory, when he recounts uh, these escapes, leaves Smallwood out of the story. I mean, they were they were very they worked very effectively together but uh for reasons that i couldn't entirely understand small uh tory just leaves smallwood's name out of everything he writes i couldn't find a single place hmm. where tory credited smallwood with his work letters themselves were you know published in this fairly obscure only paper ended up scattered around in different libraries and archives I found them in 2020 in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, you know, I finally got through to somebody at the Boston Public Library, which I had found had a big run of this newspaper, but they were stored in a warehouse uh, off site. And it took months before, uh, you know, folks who were mostly, you know, not at work because of, the, because of COVID uh, dug them out put them on microfilm and uh, I was able to to get copies of them and read Smallwood's letters. Wow. So, you know, it's just a, a series of unfortunate uh, uh, reasons, but, um, but if there's a purpose to this book, it's definitely to reintroduce or to introduce Thomas Smallwood to <laughs> Americans. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Scott Shane about his new book, Flee North, A Forgotten Hero and the Fight for Freedom in Slavery's Borderland. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Scott, I, I want to talk about this term, Underground Railroad, and where it comes from. Uh, in your research, uh, you were able to trace it to Smallwood in, in kind of an ironic way. Talk about that, uh, that, that origin of that term. Yeah, that was one of the most gratifying discoveries <laughs> in my research for this book. You know, I was reading along through these letters that Thomas Smallwood had sent to the abolitionist paper in Albany, mocking the slaveholders and celebrating the escapes. And all of a sudden he's uh, talking, he's addressing, as he often does, one of the slaveholders who's, as he put it, whose walking property walked off. <laughs> and uh, and he, uh, you know, he's basically mocking him by saying, maybe they took off since you're so baffled by how they got away, maybe they took off by that 
underground railroad that one of your constables was swearing about the other day. And so then he, he elaborates in a subsequent letter, and it's a particular notorious police constable slash slave catcher, uh, because the early police in, in that part of the country uh, you know, made a lot of money on the side uh, by collecting the rewards that slaveholders offered if escaped slaves would be returned to their enslavers. And uh, apparently this guy, whose name was John Zell, this police constable, was overheard by somebody saying, you know, I have no idea how these people are getting away. They must be getting away by an underground railroad. There were railroads at the time, but there were no underground railroads. So he was essentially saying, I have no idea how they're getting away. They must have been kidnapped by aliens, you know. <laughs> so, uh, so for Smallwood, he picks up on this. He hears about it. He picks up on it. And for him, it's a great compliment because it's essentially the police, the enslavers throwing up their hands and saying, we don't know how these people are, are escaping. And he begins to work this phrase, the Underground Railroad, the concept of an Underground Railroad, this mythical transport system into his letters. He starts riffing on it, basically. And he, you know, he advises the uh, the slaveholders who were befuddled by uh, the you know their missing workforce to uh, report to the office of the underground railroad in washington dc for information on their missing property hmm. he uh he appoints himself at one point general agent of all the branches of the national underground railroad <laughs> so he just has a good old time uh with this um you know phrase and it, while the Underground Railroad in later decades became a kind of revered, um, almost institution, mm -hmm. uh, this network of people, you know, folks helping others escape slavery, he's using it basically as, a, as he says at one point, a lash against the slaveholders. He's using it to mock the fact that they don't know how people are getting away. And, uh, and he's, you know, I, I, when I came across this, I thought, is this really possible that this is the origin of the phrase? Mm. And I looked, you know, at Wikipedia like everyone uh, would, and, and I found that the, you know, the sort of conventional explanations were all folklore, and that scholars really had not found the origin of this phrase. And when I looked into the big uh, newspaper databases that now exist of digitized 19th century newspapers, Sure enough, all the early uses of this term come from Smallwood's letters and the paper in Albany that he was writing uh, for, uh, which picked up uh, this language and uh, and just sort of used it as one more way to beat up on the slaveholders. Yeah, yeah. No, it's an it's an incredible reference, and and it it again goes to this idea uh, that uh, of the complication and the layered nature of the history around around American slavery that that many of the things that we believe to be true are are slightly different than what we than what we uh, than what we might imagine and and many things are kind of mis misunderstood or mis misattributed. Um, uh, I I had not seen. Uh, that kind of connection drawn uh, before to the name, and of course, the name yeah. even even today is is somewhat 
um, uh, it's somewhat elusive for for some folks. I remember when uh, when Colson Whitehead uh, came to talk about his book Underground Railroad here in Detroit. We had a series of book groups around town at libraries with folks talking about it before uh, before he came. And at nearly every one, uh, there was somebody who quite genuinely asked the question about whether this was a real railroad or not, whether whether this was an actual uh, railroad. I mean, there is this mythology, I think, that that follows tales of slavery that that's that's a really critical part of understanding it. Absolutely. And if, if, if only it had been as simple as uh, boarding the Underground Railroad right. getting riding out north. <laughs> right. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. You can also go to Twitter, hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you in the conversation. Let's start with Reginald, who is calling today from Mexico. Reginald, welcome to the show. Thank you, and good morning both hey. to you and to Scott. Hey. I'm uh, Yes, I'm a longtime Detroiter who uh, recently moved to Mexico, although I've been in and out of Mexico for many years. Hmm. Um, and uh, this is an absolutely uh, great conversation, great new information on the Underground Railroad. And it's, as you already put it, it's just amazing and untold history. Um, excellent. I'm very happy to hear it. Listen, I just wanted to know, why did Smallwood eventually decide to flee? I mean, apparently he was doing, you know, successful work. Was he being stalked? Had he, you know, did a group of people decide finally to, you know, get rid of him? Um, and in addition to that, well, when he finally got to Canada and around what year, what did he ended up? What did he end up doing? There was a large black community in Canada that was actually in Ontario. Did he go there, or did he go north to somewhere else? And then last but not least, what happened to his partner, his partner, Charles? Did he continue to work on the Underground Railroad or did he just kind of drift away? Those would be my questions based on what you've already told us. And I'm, you know, so anxious to hear more. <laughs> yeah, uh, Reginald, fabulous. really, really appreciate the call uh, and the questions and the fact that uh, despite you've moved away from Detroit, far away from Detroit, that you're still listening. So that's, that's wonderful, too. Uh, Scott, go ahead. So... S- things got very hot for Smallwood after he'd been doing this for a couple of years. Uh, perhaps not surprisingly, even though he was uh, very careful and uh, apparently very skilled in organizing these escapes, there were a lot of angry slaveholders around Washington and Baltimore. In both cities, uh, groups of slaveholders put up large rewards for anyone who could identify whoever was behind this rash of escapes. And uh, eventually the police in Washington began to suspect that Smallwood might be involved in this. And uh, he and Charles Torrey uh, were surprised by the police as they literally uh, loaded people into a wagon for yet another escape. And they took off running. And at that point, Smallwood knew he was running for his life. And one of the most exciting parts of this story is actually his final escape pretty much along the route that he had sent many people north Mm -hmm. on. Uh, So he ends up in Toronto and he's, uh, you know, he's worked as a shoemaker in Washington, but in Toronto, he ends up, uh, 
starting a saw factory, making, you know, saws for sawing wood. And he runs this T Smallwoods saw factory for many years up there. And there was a third part of the question. Oh, yeah, Charles Torrey. What happens to Charles Torrey? Charles Torrey, about a dozen years younger than Smallwood, but he had chronic infection with tuberculosis, uh, which was very common at the time. And uh, he ends up in prison. He is caught. He is, uh, you know, charged with uh, essentially helping people escape slavery, which was uh, very, a very serious crime at the time. And he ends up dying of TB in prison. Wow. Yeah. I mean, uh, also in the in the book, uh, you make much of the, of course, relationship between Tory and Smallwood. And you talked about the, the fact that Tory doesn't credit Smallwood in in what he describes uh, uh, when he describes their work. Um, but you also make some of the, the, the difference in race between them and how significant that was uh, back then, that, that you had this, this biracial partnership, but that race also strained that partnership in, in some important ways. Yeah, so you know when you think about these two guys in 1842 teaming up, the this sort of odd couple, um, Tory had gone to Exeter and Yale, and Smallwood had never been to school, uh, but had educated himself to a, to an astonishing degree, and they get together. And uh, when you think of them getting together, now Tory was able to raise funds. Uh, to support the escape operation from wealthy abolitionists in the North. He probably knew more about Philadelphia and the kind of route North than Smallwood. But Smallwood, as a black man, was very tied into the black community in Washington, D.C. He, you know, he could, without attracting any suspicion, approach the enslaved, talk to them. Uh, You know, he knew them from church. He knew them from his shoemaking business. So they really kind of bring different skills to the uh, to the operation. Though I have to say that Smallwood was really the the key player. Uh, but they make a they make a very unusual and um, effective partnership. And you know, to give Tory a little bit of a break, he would not have wanted to name Smallwood publicly hmm. uh, until Smallwood was safe in Toronto. Yeah. And uh, so, so it's a little hard to say what his motive was in leaving Smallwood out. But I came to believe that since he leaves him out, even of private correspondence, probably uh, there was a bit of uh, self-aggrandizing behavior on Tory's part and a desire to take credit for this operation, uh, certainly not all of which he deserved. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Scott Shane, uh, author and uh, journalist uh, and author of Flea, uh, this new book about Thomas Smallwood. Uh, It was really great to have you here to talk about the book and, of course, always great to hear your voice. Thanks so much for joining us on Detroit Today. Stephen, real pleasure. Thanks so much. We're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue talking about the Underground Railroad, but switch to a more local focus. 
University of Detroit Mercy history professor Roy Finkenbein will join to talk about the important role that Southeast Michigan and Canada played in the Underground Railroad. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. We were just talking about my former colleague Scott Shane's new book, Flee North, which highlights an important story related to the history of the Underground Railroad. But there is another crucial story in that narrative, and that is the role that abolitionist and activist right here in Detroit played in assisting enslaved African-Americans escape the South in their quest for freedom in the 19th century. To help us understand more about that role that Detroit played in the Underground Railroad, I'm joined by the director of the Black Abolitionist Archive and professor of history at the University of Detroit Mercy, Roy Finkenbein. Uh, Professor Finkenbein, welcome back to Detroit Today. It's good to be back. Yeah. So let's talk about why Detroit and, of course, our our neighbors across the river uh, were such crucial parts of the attempts to escape slavery and the quest for freedom. Well, I think there were there were a couple of reasons. One is geographical. Um, you know, there's a book by uh, noted scholar Eric Foner out a few years ago looking at the East Coast uh, Underground Railroad, and he called it Gateway to Freedom. And I keep telling folks, no, Detroit was the gateway to freedom. <laughs> um, it, it wasn't always the gateway to freedom, and I'll talk about that in a moment. But I think geography had a lot to do with it. This was, in many ways, the most convenient uh, crossing point into Canada and, and uh, ultimately into a safe space for people coming from Missouri, Kentucky, Tennessee, Western Virginia, and so forth. Um, and, and you had more crossings here than you had anywhere else along the Canadian border. Um, the other is uh, particularly militant uh, community of activists that develops in the city, particularly from the 14, uh, 1840s through the uh, early 1860s, uh, a group called the Colored Vigilant Committee that was uh, uh, one of the rare all-black operations that continued uh, to be all-black uh, into the early years of the war when it uh, no longer saw the need to be active. Yeah. Um, talk about what the, uh, the Underground Railroad was and looked like here in Detroit. And the reason I asked that question is part of the conversation we were having with Scott about the mythology that I think has grown up around that that name for, for maybe obvious reasons because, you know, it refers to something that we still have in, in our lives in America, a railroad. Everyone knows what that is. This was not that, but but I also think there's a lot of misunderstanding about what it was and how it worked. Uh, and and here in Detroit, uh, there are still there are still things around that people can experience and and interact with that that would tell us that. But but I'd love for you to describe how all of that actually worked in our city. Okay. Um, well, you know, it depends what time you're talking about. The the railroad itself. Uh, begins uh, northward after uh, 1793 when, when uh, what is today Ontario, makes it clear that uh, slaves and other people of African descent that come into the colony are going to be considered free. 
In the same year, the U.S. Congress passes the first Fugitive Slave Act, which allows slave catchers and their their masters and, and master's agents to track fugitive slaves, freedom seekers, anywhere in the U.S. Uh, initially, it's much more haphazard. Um, you, you'd have isolated operatives that were moved by, you know, moral reasons or religious reasons uh, uh, to, uh, to help. And um, a lot of freedom seekers crossed the Ohio River, for example. They knew that Canada was to the north of Ohio, and that's about all they knew. Uh, but uh, they'd catch a name sometimes from a friendly soul of somebody further north who could help them. And so you had these isolated uh, figures. Israel Harrington at Lower Sandusky, which is today uh, Fremont, Ohio, which a tavern keeper, uh, several folks at Perrysburg in the Maumee River, uh, the Ottawa Indians on the uh, a little further west than the Maumee River, uh, a guy named uh, um, Isaac Lee uh, at Monroe, and he was a he was an important public figure locally, but he also had petitioned with some fellows to uh, operate a toll bridge. Uh, across the River Raisin, and this became, you know, this became, uh, uh, it was on main roads, first of all, Mm -hmm. but secondly, it became a great conduit. The river kind of funneled, you know, freedom seekers towards that, and his house was right beside the bridge, and so he helped people get across. The bad news is it also became a location that uh, slave catchers would target. Mm. Early on, really into the 1820s, uh, a main crossing point that uh, freedom seekers would be funneled to is really uh, areas like Brownstown Township, and then they would be helped across the river. By about 1830, Detroit's really developing a significant black community. We're talking in the hundreds, Mm -hmm. a significant black community and a militant one. And you see that in several examples of and this is more informal still, but uh, for instance, when uh, uh, Thornton and Rutha or Lucy Blackburn in 1833 are recaptured and the community, uh, including people who came across the river, uh, rises up and helps them both get to freedom in Canada. In 1842, there's another incident that roils the community, uh, and that's the arrest um, and uh, uh uh, attempted extradition, which ultimately becomes an extradition, of a runaway from Arkansas named Nelson Hackett. And at that point, the Detroit black community decides to form a more rigorous organization called the Colored Vigilant Committee. Uh, they, they petition Parliament. They go over and sit in the court, uh, the, the court of Queen's Bench, uh, and, and watched the extradition trial. Ultimately, he's returned. He's the only one returned, uh, fugitive slave returned. Um, and it's those cases, the Blackburn case and the Hackett case, which establishes uh, Canadian extradition policy that lasts up to the present, including for people like me during the Vietnam era that were mm-hmm. paying attention to people that were escaping the draft and going across the border to Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh the Colored Vigilant Committee was made up of local businessmen, clergymen, and ordinary folks. And uh, while it was all black and remained all black, it worked with whites uh, when it was beneficial 
They worked with John Brown. Uh, they worked uh, with folks in places like uh, uh, Adrian and Sylvania and Monroe and uh, Westland uh, that they worked with who were whites that funneled people to them. Uh, typically, uh, what they would do, by the 1850s, they, had, they, they worked with a, a white man named Seymour Finney who had a hotel in town. Um, and uh, he also had a livery stable not far away. And uh, Finney uh, was the mindset that this was a good thing, and so he gave the Colored Vigilant Committee, um, one of the fellows, uh, keys to the livery stable. So every night, typically after midnight, mm -hmm. uh, you would have uh, freedom seekers that would be you know, brought into Detroit, shepherded into the livery stable, and then the next night they would be taken in uh, skiffs across the river to Canada. Um, of course, you've got to feed and shelter and clothe those folks in the meanwhile. And ironically, there are recorded incidents where slave catchers looking for particular uh, runaways were staying as guests in the hotel, not knowing that just uh, you know a few steps away were the people they were looking for. Mm -hmm. uh, it was very, you know, for the decade of the 50s, it was a very, very effective operation. The committee itself was headed by two gentlemen who were free blacks uh, who hadn't personally known slavery but knew people in slavery. And uh, one was William Lambert, uh, who uh, uh, was a member of Second Baptist. Mm -hmm. And William Lambert, uh, 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 you know, came here uh, about 1840 from the east, from New Jersey, was a businessman. And he... Uh, he was a major figure in bringing together uh, the local black community to form an organization. Probably the prime mover by later in the decade was a guy, a really interesting fellow named George de Baptiste. George de Baptiste deserves a book just as much as Thomas Stal uh, Smallwood does. Mm -hmm. And he also flees north. He's a, uh, he's a uh, free black from Fredericksburg, Virginia, goes up and works along the uh, Ohio River in Madison to the west of Cincinnati, is uh, a barber by trade um, at, by day. At night, he goes across the river and helps freedom seekers get out. Yeah. Um, he makes the acquaintance of William Henry Harrison. And, you know, Harrison, Tippecanoe, and Tyler II, elected in 1840, he takes... Uh, uh, De Baptiste to the White House as a personal servant. Uh, he's right there in the heartbeat of you know government. Unfortunately, Harrison dies after a month in the presidency, and so De Baptiste returns home to Madison. But he become, becomes such a scour scourge for the slave catchers that they put a price on his head. And in 1846, he flees north to Detroit, hmm. um, where he becomes along with Lambert, major figure in directing this work of the Underground Road, getting people across to Canada. A little twist he adds is that he um, purchased a boat called the T. Whitney, which operates on Lake Erie. Um, he can own the boat as a black man, but he can't captain the boat by law, so a white man captains it. But it curiously, in its Detroit to Sandusky to Detroit run, always has to stop on the Canadian side to take on wood and water. And most people surmise that that was a convenient way to 
you know, to get to yeah. freedom seekers across to Canada. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm talking with Roy Finkenbein. He is the director of the Black Abolitionist Archive and a professor of history at the University of Detroit Mercy. Uh, we're talking about the history of the Underground Railroad here in the city of Detroit and across the river uh, with our Canadian neighbors. We'd love to hear from you, our, our listeners uh, as well. Give us a call and let us know what you know about the Underground Railroad. What questions do you have about how it worked or what it looked like here in the city of Detroit? Uh, uh, the phone the phone number here, as always, is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can work you into the conversation uh, that way. Uh, Professor, I... I I always think that one of the important dimensions of of this research and and understanding about the Underground Railroad is kind of how it casts forward into Detroit today. It is part of our history, of course, and as I said, there's lots of places you can go. I mean, if you go to Second Baptist, for instance, uh, there's a wonderful tour there of the way that that facility was used in the Underground Railroad. But but talk about the ways that you see this history, I guess, informing the way we live now in Detroit and the things that uh, we know to be true and, and, and interact with in, in the modern world. Well, it's, it's a, a part of our history that we can be very proud of. And I know I, I've seen this in talking to folks at uh, Second Baptist and being there. I mean, they could not be prouder of their role in the Underground Railroad. A um, little over a decade ago when the, um, when the uh, uh, Detroit Historical Museum uh, did some retooling of their permanent exhibits, I was uh, asked to be one of the people on a team that was providing feedback and direction in terms of uh, one of the exhibits, and one of the reasons that the Underground Railroad exhibit is there is it was one of the of the most positive statements about Detroit in the in the 19th century in the view of everyone there. Uh, uh, you know, I th- we were a little behind the eight ball. We're just catching up with the Native American role in Michigan mm-hmm. in the Underground Railroad, but you know the the truly interracial dimensions, cooperation between the races, uh, people willing for religious or moral reasons to uh, do things that were extra legal because they thought it was a matter of justice. And, uh, uh, you know, unfortunately Detroit has had a heritage of tearing down some of its historic buildings, but we still have uh, a lot of, you know, historical markers on the landscape and more coming uh, that that tell that story. It's been worked more and more into school cur- curriculums. University of Michigan has developed some secondary and elementary cl- curricular material. Um, the Detroit uh, uh, River Corridor Project uh, mm-hmm. has has run uh, you know, summer programming and other programming. Um, it's not only a feel good story. I think it's an instructional story in talking to us about how what we do has to be based on principles of social justice, the mm-hmm. good of the whole community, and sometimes taking a risk. Um, I've, uh, I've written a little bit about the improvisational nature of the, uh, the Underground Railroad. We sometimes think 
it's fixed, that railroad imagery, because trains run on tracks and on time. Mm -hmm. The Underground Railroad was highly improvisational because it had to be. Like all illegal activity, and this for a good cause, you're, you're, you're always having to uh, uh, um, make adjustments. You know, what if a slave catcher is over here? You go over there. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's a story in, in my own family down in Ohio, uh, ancestors uh, who uh, was a couple, a Quaker couple, who um, were keeping a family overnight, a freedom seeker family. They just had breakfast and were ready to send them on their way, and two slave catchers ran into the barnyard, wow. rode into the barnyard. The, the husband ran out to delay them under the guise of water, feeding and watering their horses. So the wife cleaned up the, the breakfast dishes, hid the family in the house, and made a second breakfast for the slave catchers. <laughs> wow. wow. While they're eating, she's listening to them talk. She's gathering information. So as soon as they left, she went the opposite, you know, the opposite direction with the family. Um, at night, the slave catchers came back to the house, upset they hadn't been able to find these folks, but they slept that night in the bed that the freedom seekers had slept in the night before. <laughs> the night before. Wow. <laughs> well, that's a great story. It's a great story. Uh, let's go quickly to the phones here. Chuck in Inkster, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Yeah. Yeah, I was uh, just, just wanted to say that uh, the namesake of Inkster, Robert S. Inkster, was also an abolitionist. He uh, would help ferry people down to Detroit to, to help them get across the Detroit River. And he was also uh, the uh, postmaster. And at that time, the Detroit Free Press, which was a pro-slavery uh, uh, newspaper at that time, yeah. He, he was he was responsible for distributing the, the free press, and he would insert uh, anti-slavery uh, information <laughs> in the newspaper. Yeah, yeah, uh, Chuck, that's a that's a great reference, and uh, I've heard that story about the the anti-slavery material being slipped into the free press, which is, of course, which was started as an anti-abolitionist uh, paper uh, here in in Detroit to try to. To try to dissuade the North from uh, from ending slavery in the South, and certainly to dissuade uh, the Union from going to war over 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 slavery. That's important history uh, as well. Okay, uh, Professor Finkenbein, it's always great to have you here to uh, talk with us on uh, on Detroit today. Thanks so much. Detroit Today is produced by Sam Corey and Nick Austin. Our technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. Our assistant producer is Maddie Boyer. Our music is by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. And podcast editing is by David Lyons. Our program director is Adam Fox. Detroit Today is a production of WDET in Detroit. And you can support the show by leaving a rating or a comment. Thanks for listening.